0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. I'm Brad Talley, the teaching elder. So glad that you are here this morning. Thank you, Scott, Keisha, worship team, very much um, for leading us to sing Hosanna, in the highest. Here at the beginning of Passion Week, by the way, I should say before I jump right in, to reiterate what Jeff said earlier, we will have one service next Sunday. It'll be out back, Lord willing, weather permitting at 10 a.m. So we'll all be together, both services. We'll have all the folks back from the mountains and uh, just worship the Lord together outside on Easter But here at the beginning of Passion Week, it is appropriate that this is a busy church week. Wouldn't you agree? Thursday night, many of us will be sharing a Seder meal together here at the church. And the Seder meal explains the elements of the Passover meal. And it tells us why Jesus used this occasion. It was a perfect occasion to begin to talk about what it means that he was going to die For the sins of the people. His plan, beginning to explain God's plan for redemption through his own sacrifice on the cross. Well, he was explaining, but the disciples weren't getting. They were like, okay, glad we're done with that. Now, am I going to be at your right? Who's going to be at your right hand? Who's going to be? They weren't getting it. But later, it would make perfect sense. Here at Grace, we gather at the Lord's table Two Sundays out of the week or out of the month, first Sunday and third Sunday. And we observe the supper during those times, except when Easter falls on the third Sunday, which is going to happen next week. And since the Lord's Supper is primarily a meal for believers, and since it's also the one Sunday out of the year that a number of unbelievers come their only time of the year, then we will wait until the fourth Sunday of the month, this month, April 24th. So Thursday night, the Seder meal. Friday night at 7 p.m., we will come together for a Good Friday service, our annual Good Friday service. Since we believe that the crucifixion is, as John Stott writes, the central point in all history, now think about that. The cross is the center or the crux. It's the hinge on which everything turns. The cross is the center of all history. So may I encourage you to make your best effort to be here Friday night at 7 p.m. If you've never been to a Good Friday service, Make this the year that you attend your very first Good Friday service 7 pm this past week I have had personal family matters uh, that I needed to tend to so if today's message sounds familiar then you can know that you were paying good attention and/or taking good notes three years ago on Palm Sunday Today is Palm Sunday once again do you love the way the Lord does things in cycles. It's Palm Sunday once again, and we're thinking about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and all that occurred during Holy Week. So it's the perfect setup to preach from any of the four Gospels, which means, of course, I'll be preaching from Psalm 118. When Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, hailed as the Messiah by the people, There was no New Testament. Now think about that. We have Old Testament, New Testament. There was no New Testament. Although almost everyone missed important facets of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' movements, it would all make sense later as the Holy Spirit made clear the truth of Scripture, which had been pointed to Jesus All along. So no New Testament, but the Old Testament was going like this the entire time. Well, on the other side of Pentecost, it would begin to all fall in place, really after the resurrection, but especially during the Pentecost. The events of Passion Week in in Jerusalem were dramatic by anyone's standards, but the implications of those events far exceed the individual features of the story. So it's a little bit here, a little bit there, but once you put it all together, the implications and the ripple effects of what happened during that week just keep going truly throughout eternity. That's the reason we're called to come often to the table and remember Jesus' death and anticipate his return. Perhaps This is the most startling truth, the whole thing. God entered our world as one of us to reverse the devastating impact of our sins. And he entered through the miraculous conception and birth of Jesus, followed by his perfect life and sacrificial death. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and all of this happened in space and time in the land of Palestine, with the most important events occurring around and in Jerusalem. Amazingly, as we read a few years back in the prologue to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people, not, not just humanity the Jewish people, the covenant people of God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Fortunately, this startling news is followed with, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is wonderful, wonderful news, but we must acknowledge that we understand it on this side of Jesus' resurrection and on this side of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to indwell and instruct through the word of God all who believe. The most dramatic event in Israel's Uh, passed up until this time was the Passover, or was the the Exodus when the Lord led the people out of slavery, slavery. He delivered them from slavery. He delivered them from their own sins. And that event began with the observance of the Passover meal. And it was during the Passover meal in Jerusalem that Jesus refocused the meal and initiated the Lord's Supper. Before the meal, two psalms were sung by the participants at the meal, Psalms 113 and Psalm 114. After the meal, the participants would sing Psalms 115 through 118. Two psalms before the meal, four psalms after the meal. These six psalms became known as the Egyptian Hallel. Now, Hallel means praise, praise to God. These psalms are known as the Egyptian Hillel, not because they originated in Egypt, but they were pointing back to that time. They were saying, remember, when we were in Egypt, we were slaves, and the Lord delivered us and brought us into a new place, a new land. So, the Passover was first observed in Egypt focusing on God's deliverance of his people from slavery and his deliverance of them from his wrath against sin. And these psalms make up the Egyptian Hallel. Psalm 114 is the only one of the six psalms that directly mentions the Exodus. But the themes of raising the downtrodden and the festal processions or the festive, joyful processions of both the king and the people make these psalms the perfect songs to recall God's redemptive work associated with the Passover meal. I was thinking this morning during the the worship time, these songs are perfect to lead us to recall the work of Jesus on the cross and even pointing to the last supper, the, the, the Passover meal that became the Lord's Supper. So as much as I would like to, and as helpful as it would be to summarize all six psalms, our focus this morning is on Psalm One Eighteen. This would have been the very last song of worship that Jesus sang before his crucifixion. It was a long song, but it was sung with the tune that everyone, with which everyone was familiar. And you know how we all are—we can learn things better through singing. We do this with children all the time, but adults are the same way. If we sing something, we remember it a lot better than if we're just trying to recite it in our mind. So they all knew the Psalms. They were all singing along. And Psalm 118 was the last. It was the last song of worship that Jesus sang before his crucifixion. Thus ending the meal with hope even though he was facing the worst trial that any human would ever face. It was far more than the physical suffering that Jesus would endure that he was facing. The first four verses of our psalm will serve as the reading for the day, so please stand if you would as God's word is being read. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated if you would. Psalm 118 is a psalm of great celebration that was likely sung in the festal processions in some of the annual feast held at Jerusalem. Now, much of this song is sung by an individual. It was almost certainly written for a king to sing as he would lead the people in procession into Jerusalem. It's already been noted that this would have been the last psalm that Jesus and his disciples would have sung as they moved toward the garden after the supper. It begins and ends with the exact same words of gratitude, which points to the goodness of the Lord's uh, favor on his people. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is really cool to me. In verses 2 to 4, three different groups of people are addressed. Israel is addressed, the nation of Israel. Israel. And then the priest of Aaron's family are addressed. Who, the priest who led the people in worship. And then those who fear the Lord. These same three groups were exhorted to trust the Lord in Psalm 115, 9 through 11. Write that down somewhere. Put it on your phone or something. Go back and look. Those same three groups of people are addressed. So the people of Israel we get... The priest in Aaron's family we get, but the God-fearers, who were those who feared the Lord? Well, once again, you think it's just the people. Indeed, it was talking to the people of God, but it's interesting to note that Gentiles who converted to Judaism later on would be known as God-fearers or as righteous Gentiles. They were not known as God-fearers when these Psalms were written, but they would come to be known as that. I I doubt many of us in this room, I, I doubt we are aware of how blessed we are. It was God's plan all along to include Gentiles in big numbers into the covenant family of God. But most leaders in the Jewish nation, both then and later, when Jesus was among them, missed the promise. They missed the promise that God was going to bring Gentiles into the family and that we would be just as important as the Jewish covenant people of God. While the Exodus is almost certainly recalled in verses 5 through 7, God's promise to protect Israel from her enemies is also given. But what can the enemies of the Lord's people do To those who love the Lord. (laughs) It's the same promise found for New Testament believers in Romans 8. The psalmist's prayer was offered before Jesus' cross though. It's the same before and after. Jesus taught us to love and forgive our enemies. On the cross he forgave those who crucified him. And although the Old Testament commanded God's people to forgive one another, it was primarily in the context of the covenant people of God. The New Testament command is so much broader than just covering the covenant community. Forgive all those. Who crucified Jesus? Jews or Gentiles? Yes. (laughs) When he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. It covered all. Verses eight through nine remind us that our refuge is in the Lord. Are you picking up on a theme around trust in this psalm? We tend to think that the Old Testament saints were, were saved by keeping the law, and the New Testament saints are saved by believing in Jesus. But God's redemptive work has always been linked to trusting his promises. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. James Montgomery Boyce said that those who worry about such things, and I had heard this years before, and I've seen other verses that are suggested, but James Montgomery Boyce says these are the two middle verses in all the Bible. What great verses to have as the two middle verses in the Bible. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There is much more, of course, to Psalm 118, but let's skip down to verses 19 to 20 where the king demands to be allowed into the gates of the city. Jesus entered Jerusalem wholly on his own merits as the only righteous one. Fortunately, those who trust him will also be considered righteous and will enter the gates of the eternal city with him. You know what it's like? You ever been to a... Uh, an event, and you don't have the tickets, and you just say, I'm with him, I'm with her, you know, and they say, oh, okay, you come in. Even more so, backstage at a big event, a big public event, if you're with somebody in the know, and, and, and there's somebody saying, mm-mm, you say, I'm with him, and they say, okay, pass. That's us going into the city with Jesus. These two verses remind me of Jesus' attitude when he entered the city on Palm Sunday. The leaders demanded that Jesus silence those who were in the crowd, praising him as the Messiah. And Jesus replied, I tell you, if these are silent, the very rocks themselves will cry out. Verse 22 The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, wait a minute. Who who are the builders? Who are the builders that are rejecting the cornerstone? Could it be that the builders were the religious leaders of the Jewish nation? Furthermore, could the stone that they rejected be Jesus? If Jesus is the Messiah, the righteous one who leads many into Zion, it cannot be a good thing if the leaders are rejecting him, right? The rejection of the Messiah was, alas, God's doing. And God's will is always a good thing. Always. Verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Those two verses don't seem to go together, do they? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The original readers of this psalm understood this passage to describe the king of Israel leading God's people into Jerusalem with praise on their lips for the mercies of the Lord. Many who understood and many who did not understand. Many who understood that this verse was pointing to the Messiah and many who had no idea they were just singing along with everybody else. Rejoiced when Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Surely some of the people were thinking about Psalm 18 when they threw coats and palm branches before Jesus and shouted as had been prophesied in verses 25 to 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Then in this psalm of great joy and praise, verse 27 prophesies what will simultaneously be the darkest moment in history and the brightest moment in history. When Jesus bears the sins of the world on the cross, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Now, this is only the first half of verse 27. But before we complete it, does this remind you again of the prologue in John's gospel? John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was the light that came into the world but then in John 3 we're told and reminded that the light was rejected because men and women love darkness more than light and not only the darkness of debauchery and wicked sin but also the darkness of religious piety that emits Jesus from the equation for eternal life. The consequences of refusing to believe in Jesus is intensified when you understand the end of Psalm 118, 27. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Now, this is all joyful in their thinking. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords. Up to the horns of the altar, we will lead the sacrificial lamb, the sacrificial cow. and even though psalm 118 is not classified as a psalm of ascent it has that feel the psalms of ascent were sung by the people as they were going up to jerusalem now if you had a bird's eye view of jerusalem and the people coming they would always always be going up jerusalem sits on a mound and you're always going up to jerusalem As the pilgrims near the city and they're singing these psalms, they sing this joyful song of celebration to the Lord with gratitude that God will temporarily cover their sins through animal sacrifices. It is only through Jesus' sacrifice, though, that sins have been permanently removed for those who repent and believe. The perfect Lamb of God was bound and led to the cross to be slaughtered with the horns of the altar in verse 27 becoming the arms of the cross. He was bound. He died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus exchanged His righteousness and life for our sin and death. And he did so willingly. Jesus was able to do what Adam and the rest of us were not capable of doing. To live in complete obedience to God's will. That is what made Jesus a worthy sacrifice for our sins. It is also why Jesus is known as the last Adam or the second Adam. Look at the contrast as laid out by Dustin Binge. The first Adam was born of dirt. The last Adam, born of woman, but the eternal Son of God. The first Adam tempted and failed anybody in that category from this week. The last Adam tempted. And victorious no matter what. The circumstance. The first Adam brought a curse. The second Adam became a curse. The first Adam blamed his bride. The last Adam took the blame. For his bride. The first Adam. Died. And buried. The last Adam. Died and risen. It was on the very first Palm Sunday that Jesus would move inexorably toward the cross. He was determined to be the sin bearer even though he would be tempted to alter his course. If you were a casual bystander, you would not think Jesus was doomed to die when he entered the the, the city. Are you kidding me? This guy is going to be king someday. But political observers would have known that he was asking for trouble. The scene was set in Matthew 21, beginning with verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and they followed him. were and that followed him were shouting, "Hosanna!" To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Psalm 118 verses 25 to 6 came to life in Jesus' triumphal entry. Hosanna originally meant God save us. It was a plea. But by the first century, the term had come to be used as an expression of praise. And which is appropriate? Both are appropriate. God, save us. Praise the Lord. It is not the exact same word used in Psalm 118 and Matthew 21, but it's close. Both elements fit the context on Palm Sunday. A cry for salvation and a cry for praise. All understood the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord To be associated with the Messiah. Sadly, sadly, the Messiah had come. And the leaders of the people rejected him. They rejected the cornerstone. In Matthew 23, 37 to 39, we see Jesus' heartbreaking lament over his people. He proclaims himself to be the Messiah for whom the Jewish leaders had looked, but now they had missed. He was saying, in one sense, you had your chance and you missed what was right before your eyes. Then, in another, he was saying, the next time I come to Jerusalem, you will not miss who I am. Verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At his second coming, all who have put their hope in Jesus will rejoice with inexpressible joy. Those who have rejected Jesus will experience him as the rightful and terrifying judge of all the earth. There is likely, though, an element of great hope for the Jewish people in this verse. In the end, the people of Israel will turn to the Lord in full and will indeed accept Jesus to be their rightful Messiah and Savior. Hallelujah, as in the Egyptian Hallel. A great place to return to Psalm 118 for the last word. It ends with the same word of praise with which it began. It must have been wonderful after Jesus' resurrection for those who sincerely sought the Lord and who sang Psalm 118 every year at the conclusion of the Passover meal and then much more frequently at the Lord's Supper. They finally put all the pieces together and recognized that Jesus was the one who had come... (coughs) In the name of Yahweh, to take away sins forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Don't forget, these were the last words that Jesus and his disciples sang as he headed for the cross. The sorrow and joy that mingled in Jesus' heart as he sang these words, these words that had pointed to the the death and the resurrection after his crucifixion. And the saving of people from all nations was somewhat akin to what those of us In this room who believe can sense in our hearts. Especially at this time of the year. We know going into this week what this week means. We know the debates that go on between Jesus and the leaders of the people. We know of their rejection. We know of the disciples' confusion. We know of his arrest and trial and horrific execution but we know that he rose again. Joy, hope, horror, reflection, but most of all, praise at this time of year. Today's message and today's sermon is only part of what we are called to engage this week, this Passion Week, this Holy Week, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, so many times in life. Joy and sorrow and shock and peace seem to simultaneously exist in our hearts. And we can't give explanation for any of that. But Lord, it goes a long way just thinking about the events of Holy Week, of Passion Week. How Jesus began by riding into the city, and hailed as Messiah and conquering king, and then moved to the cross, but back again to life. So, Lord, whatever it is that we are experiencing at this moment, we pray that you would remind us of the last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, the cornerstone, and may we not reject, may we receive with all our hearts. And from day to day, as we desire to live for you, may the truth of the gospel encourage, instruct, motivate us to live for you in the power of the Spirit. May Jesus be evident in our lives this week. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.